This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. For more than two decades, Florida has been a leader in education reform. Student performance in Florida has climbed the national charts from close to the bottom to one of the top states in the country. The progress of its Hispanic students has been particularly amazing. Much of what has been accomplished was begun by the Jeb Bush administration, which introduced a wide range of accountability and choice reforms. When Jeb Bush left office, he continued to push for reform through an organization today known as Excellence in Ed, or Excel in Ed. And under Florida's latest governor, Ron DeSantis, education progress is still being made. To discuss the latest school choice developments in Florida and across the United States, I am pleased to have with me Patricia Levesque, Chief Executive Officer of Excel in Ed and Jeb Bush's former Deputy Chief of Staff for Education. Patricia, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, thanks for having me. Patricia, just exactly what's happening in Florida? I know that they passed a lot of educational legislation, but can you summarize it all for our listeners? Sure. Well, in this last year, of course, with the pandemic, um, I would say it was the year of education in Florida in that there were so many decisions made by the executive branch during um, the, the, the height of the outbreak and then the legislature's action. It was, it's really been incredible. So um, during, during the height of the pandemic, something that the state commissioner and the governor did was ensure that public schools were protected during their closures um, when they were you know, having to serve kids, they didn't lose funding, even though their, their, the number of students declined. They were given that funding in exchange for doing something that was really parent-friendly, which was ensure parents had one of two full-time options, full-time in-person instruction and full-time online instruction. So in Florida, except for the tail end of last school year, schools have really been open. Um, starting with the current 2021 school year, parents had the option of full-time in-person, full-time online instruction. All of that support continued through GEAR funding, right? The federal funding that came down, um, Governor DeSantis and the commissioner really directed those funds in ways to protect private schools through private school stabilization grants and further grants to school districts for learning loss and, and early literacy and other things. When we got into the legislative session, uh, the work just continued. So the legislature not only fully supported uh, teachers with maintaining historic teacher pay increases that had begun the prior year, uh, but they also uh, did some more, you know, expansion of, for the first time, having an alternate charter school authorizer, uh, ensuring that Schools of Hope funding, which is an incentive fund to recruit high-performing CMOs to the state to grow and expand. So how many students are in charter school in Florida now? Uh, I'd have to check the numbers, but I would say about 350,000 students are in public charter schools, um, which have seen tremendous growth. This past year, home education saw a 13% increase. The uh, full-time Florida virtual school program was almost a 100% increase. Their part-time program was a 60% 60, 60 increase. There were a lot of increases in, in options and 
because we have so much private school choice, our private schools um, fared well during the pandemic. We didn't have you know, the closures that you saw in other parts of the country where parents who were impacted by the pandemic couldn't afford to pay for their tuition anymore. But because we have so much private school choice, um, our private schools fared very well. So the, the entire ecosystem of public schools, public charters, private schools, virtual schools, all remained pretty healthy and active. Um, and then the legislature expanded private school choice. So there was a lot more done um, in the state on private school choice. So on the private school choice front, there, I, there's this education savings account idea that's become popular. Can you describe what an educator, our audience may not have ever heard that phrase before. So what is an education savings account and what does it look like in Florida? Sure. Well, as opposed to a scholarship or a voucher where a parent picks a private school of their choice and the, the state sends funding to the private school for tuition. An education savings account is an account where funding is put in for a parent and then the parent directs the expenditures. And typically there is a whole range of, of eligible uses. So a parent can direct those funds toward private school tuition or fees, tutoring. Um, all How about piano lessons? Can you, can, you, can you use the money for piano lessons? You can use it for um, music, music camp. Um, you can use it for therapy. If your child needs speech therapy or occupational therapy, physical therapy, you can use it for um, summer programs. I mean, you can use it for technology, for devices, for instructional materials. There's a huge range of uses. In fact, even in Florida, you can, if you're, if you're wise in your spending for your child, you can even put some away in a 529 or a college savings plan. So it allows the parent to really figure out what does my child need? How do I spend those funds? And, and they can even think long-term in the use of- how about the, the, how about the students who remain in public schools? Are they eligible for the education savings account or do you have to uh, withdraw from the public school to become eligible? The education savings accounts are, are basically using the same amount or level of funding that you would have received in the public school system. So you do, you do need to make a choice in order to get the, the ESA. So it's the level of funding for that school from the state or from the state and the district both that sets the education savings account amount. The amount is the full state local amount. It's currently funded with just the state share, but it's the full amount state and local. So if a school from all of its resources from the state and local governments is spending $10,000 on, their, on a, a child's education, then that, that's the size of your education savings account. That's right. So that's, is that really the, the right number or it, what's, what's the average in Florida? How much is available? The average in Florida is about $8,000 per student is the average. So you have $8,000 for your child and you can spend it on whatever services you think are best, but then isn't tuition at a private school pretty much the whole that will take that full amount if you send your child to a private school? There's certainly a range of private school tuition and fees in the state. I wanna say that the average is around 6,500, but that might be a little dated. And right now, 
the education savings account option is only for students with special needs. So the amount of money they're getting is a little bit more, probably 10, uh, 12,000, depending on the level of, of need of the, of the student. Um, so there is an ability to um, have some flexibility on top of private school tuition and fees. Which well, I know that, yeah, the tax credit uh, programs were all funded by private donations from businesses and individuals who wanted to give to a foundation, which then made this money available. Now, does this replace the, those uh, tax credit programs that existed previously? That's a great question. So Florida had, had past tense, uh, six different programs. The largest was the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program. That still exists. It, it did not necessarily change this year. Um, and that program serves about 100,000 students annually. What the legislature did was combine several of the other programs, two programs for students with special needs and another uh, new income-based program that was part, it's funded within the state public school funding formula. And it basically merged all of those programs together. You still have multiple ways of becoming eligible, but that program was incredibly expanded this year. So um, whereas we've always, you know, uh, the, the number of, of low-income students who could be served was capped based on our ability to raise money, that doesn't exist anymore. Now, uh, all 1.2 million low-income public school students in the state could exercise private school choice at any time, at any time. All students with special needs in the public schools could exercise private school choice at any time. And then on top of that, um, what the legislature did was remove the prior public school attendance requirement so if I have somebody who's five years of age and has never gone to school, I can still take advantage of this program. I don't have to send my child to a school. I don't want that child to attend in order to become eligible. Right. Or you were a home education um, student or you were in the private school system already. Now, any parent who meets the um, or any student who meets the eligibility based on having a special need or meeting the income criteria, which also increased this year to 375% of poverty, or what is about $99,000 for a family of four, is eligible. And, and they're eligible to exercise uh, private school choice now. Well, that's been one of the criticism of, of this law. And I'm wondering how you respond to that, because some people say, listen, the proponents of school choice have said it's the civil rights issue of our time, but now it's the money's being made available to families that are making as much as $90,000 a year. Isn't this program being taken over by the middle class? Well, I personally believe all families deserve options for their children because not every school is the right fit for every child. And since education is so important uh, and our kids having a high quality education, I believe every family should have that opportunity. But the income increases actually just mean that, you know, a classroom teacher, a public school teacher married to um, a, a, a firefighter, now possibly they're eligible. Uh, so I think 
expanding the income criteria to the middle class only broadens the support and success of the program. And what the legislature did was um, make sure that low income students are prioritized because they don't ever have to wait in line. They don't have to worry about getting a scholarship and being under some numerical cap of the number of scholarships. They're eligible at any time they want to um, choose. So are there any caps on the education savings accounts? So can as much money be spent through that as, as uh, is demanded by parents and families? There are caps on both the income eligibility and the student with special need eligibility. But basically those caps um, are for existing students who were in the scholarship program and new students coming in who were not in the public school system already, right? So the, the um, students that had not been in the public school system or the higher income that students that are eligible because all low income public school students, all students with special needs in the public school system are eligible outside the cap. They can have choice at any time. So this program could grow very rapidly if the private sector grew rapidly. Well, it could grow by 1.2 million students uh, easily if there were that many seats available in the private school supply. Well, are you seeing any expansion of supply and response? I know it's early, this law just passed, but uh, do you see signs that schools are planning to expand or new schools are planning to come online to meet the uh, possible increase in demand? I think we have conversations with different uh, representatives of all the different private school associations. And I think the, the expansion this year, um, because it was, it was so large and because that prior public school attendance requirement uh, has been removed, I think you were, you're gonna see private schools actually plan for growth. I know that we heard from several uh, schools, particularly those that serve, let's say, um, uh, some of our, our Jewish schools that were already identifying, they were seeing increases in enrollment just during the pandemic from folks moving from uh, New York, let's say, down to Florida so they could have in-person instruction. So I do think we are going to see private schools look to expand uh, their seats because of this law. This is a pretty substantial change, but of course, Florida's always been engaged ahead of time and reform and school choice, especially. But um, was there something new this year? Was, did the pandemic change the politics? Was, did the support for uh, school choice uh, all of a sudden sweep across the, the legislature because they were upset about where we were in American education? You know, I think it was a couple of things. One, in Florida, we're really blessed to have all three leaders, the governor, the Senate president, the Speaker of the House, who are supportive of empowering families with options. So when, when all your leaders are supportive, it makes um, expanding opportunities for families a lot easier. But I do think that the pandemic and all the experiences that families in general were facing not only impacted Florida, but impacted policymakers across the country. Like if I had to describe this year of legislative sessions across the country, it was the year of school choice. You saw multiple states take action on private school choice and public school choice opportunities 
um, that have not taken those steps in the past. Well, I've noticed that as well. And we let's shift to the larger picture out there. Uh, you know, last November was a pretty bad year for Republicans. And a lot of people blamed uh, it not only on the president, but also on uh, the U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, who was, a, you know, the very, very uh, open supporter of school choice and and people said that this has now been rejected. We now have a new administration. School choice has got to go to take a back seat. Uh, we have to recognize that the teacher unions uh, played a major role in this past election, and we have to reward these people who won that election. So how does school choice survive that landslide, perhaps close landslide, but still a pretty decisive victory in both the uh, presidency and in Congress. Uh, how does it happen that we still get all of this legislation this spring? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to steal an example from uh, the Speaker of the House in Florida. He and I both served on a commission in the state called the Constitutional Revision Commission. It's a group that meets every 20 years and can put uh, changes to the Constitution on the ballot. And when we had hearings all across the state, we had 16 of them or more, and families would come in with red and green cards. So you would, instead of applause in between speakers, you'd wave a card green or red if you supported what the next person was saying. And so during every single commission hearing, you'd see a handful of parents come in and would get up and, and talk about protecting school choice in the constitution. And because they all had these yellow school choice t-shirts on and, and then you'd see them sit down in the audience and there were all kinds of other speakers that talked about issues. If you want to put this in red and blue terms about blue issues, right? Environmental issues or, or um, choice, um, not school choice, but uh, woman's right to choose issues. And you would see these parents that had just spoken on school choice waving their little green cards, right, in agreement on other issues that may be considered much more center-left issues. And what, you know, I think the speaker's observation, and I would totally agree, is when you um, are asking parents to make decisions, uh, they're going to choose their kids over their ideology anytime. And so, you know, lawmakers across the country are hearing, I believe, what parents are saying, which is, we need choice. We need opportunities. There's nothing more important to me as my child. And I know that what's most important for them is getting a good high quality education. And so um, I think Walton Foundation has seen it in polling. Several other organizations have seen it in polling. Just the appetite and the, the approval from parents for wanting more opportunities is so broad this year. And that is, I think, what you're seeing in, in state legislatures. They're responding to what their constituents are saying. So where is the change occurring? I have places like Kentucky, Montana, Nevada, West Virginia. Sure. What's all, what are the options out there? There are about a dozen states that had um, existing programs or adopted new scholarship programs. Florida, we talked about Indiana. Um, did some pretty big expansions to their program on income eligibility and the amount of the scholarships. The new ones, uh, I mean, what we saw was West Virginia that had no private school choice adopted a universal 
education savings account. So any public school student, doesn't matter your income level, is eligible for private school choice a year from now. It's, it, it, they have a year to implement. Um, Kentucky adopted the first tax credit funded education savings account. Indiana adopted its first education savings account for students with special needs. Missouri adopted a tax credit funded ESA. New Hampshire is considering one and I think they're going to get it across the finish line this year. So massive amounts of private scholarship, uh, private education savings account expansions. Plus you've seen states take action on public school choice and more public charter um, equitable funding for, for public charter schools and um, more transparency in the public school in district and across district choice as well. Well, I noticed that a lot of the places you mentioned and that I mentioned are, are what we would call red states or pretty close to red states. And so is there, is there a new divide in education like there is in so much other uh, things? Some, some states out there are really focusing on the public schools and coming up with a more progressive curriculum than ever before. So we've got you know, part of the country moving in one direction and another part moving in another. Are we creating a new divide in America? You know, I think that there are just, of course, there are different issues that different um, political figures will um, pay attention to, but it doesn't mean that um, all the legislatures aren't doing something to expand opportunity for parents. So for the first time, there was an, a, a universal education savings account bill filed in California. Like that, that's a step. I mean, you can't move a bill until it's filed. So California had a universal ESA bill filed. So Louisiana that has a Democratic governor, but a, a Republican dominated legislature just passed a pretty large reading scholarship account. So students who are struggling readers can get funding in order to pay for tutoring or uh, technology that they may need to connect into more supports for reading. Michigan is pursuing something similar. Um, I, I do think that there are different activities going on. Illinois that, that passed a, a tax credit funded scholarship didn't roll that back. They protected it and they they grew the eligible use um, to include a, apprenticeship type programs. So there are actions. Um, Colorado, Colorado has a ballot initiative um, that's being backed by Governor Polis to provide $1,500 grants to families who are low income to do after school or summer enrichment activities. And so I do think they may enter um, the choice type of opportunities at a different point, but over time, once you empower families to direct public funds on their child's behalf, I do think you're gonna see that uh, those opportunities grow. Well, have you seen moves backward? I mean, you've been around and a long time, you've been supporting these kinds of ideas, uh, at least uh, for, the last two decades. Uh, so uh, you have really got a vision that very few people have. And everybody says that it's all, nobody ever takes choice away from parents once it's been provided. Is that what you would say? Or can you find some examples where 
where that's happened and, and you have to really work hard to protect choice once you put it into place. Well, I, I think, I, I don't recall any this year of private school choice options that have been, you know, curtailed. I do think there are advances, I'll pick on Florida for a little bit. So as much as the state did on public, uh, you know, public school choice, public charter choice, private school choice, the Florida legislature took some steps back, I would say on virtual or online learning, there were some caps put on uh, virtual school programs uh, that were run in partnership by a school district and online you know, providers. So there are steps that are taken um, and it'll just be a matter of you know, re-engaging with the legislature and, and painting the picture that online choice is choice as well. And so parents that want that opportunity. Right. But it was not a good year for digital learning. I, I think a lot of parents got uh, upset that their kids had to stare at a screen all year, year long. And uh, the data is coming back that show that kids didn't learn as much when they were learning online as they do when they're right in the classroom. So it probably wasn't a very good year for online learning. And I, I will say on online learning, I, you know, I have two children who did online learning during the uh, spring of last school year. And for one child, it worked, right? For, for my son, who's on the autism spectrum, it worked. And he plowed through his work. He zoomed in for calls and he, you know, got to check the box and it was done. And then he was free for the rest of the day. And for my daughter, it's like, uh, it was not the ideal environment for her. So, you know, what I think is now that we have exercised this muscle across the country where we've delivered courses online everywhere, um, we shouldn't go backwards, right? That that muscle that has been exercised and the skill that has been learned, we need to think about how do we move it forward? Don't make it permanent for every child to have to do online, but but let's make sure that every course that's offered that students can access it all across the state or across state lines. And how great was it when Alaska students were being taught by Florida teachers while Alaska was standing up the Alaska virtual school? Like that type of cross-state collaboration was fantastic. And I hope those types of activities don't stop when the pandemic's over. Well, you really got a vision. Uh, how about homeschooling? Have you um, any thoughts on that? Some people say it's doubled. Some people say it's entering into a new era. H how do you assess uh, the homeschool movement as it's uh, uh, gone through the pandemic? Well, I don't know what the numbers are nationally. I know the numbers in Florida, there was a 13% increase in home education enrollment. But what I'm not sure of is how many of these are really operating as micro schools. So it is kind of a shared activity. You've heard of the term potting and, and micro schools. I think there are a lot of parents that are kind of sharing the responsibility and um, forming these smaller um, like Prenda type models of micro schools where some of the activities are home education like activities and others are you know, instruction by a certified teacher. I do think what has been really incredible is this unbundling of education, kind of 
you know, parents figuring out, you know what, with some supports, I can actually do this and I enjoy it. I enjoy having more time with my child and I just need, you know, a couple of supports from certified teachers or from, from other um, tutors or helpers and, and we can make this work and it, and it works for our child. Well, I work in a university, Patricia, and uh, we're always looking for research opportunities. What do you think that the research community needs to focus on? What do, what do people who are actually involved in the issues of the day want to learn from the research community? Wow, there are, there are so many research opportunities. Um, I would say over time, really looking at what's happening with these micro schools and pods and these really innovative, you know, out school models and cottage class supports. I, I do think looking at has there been a shift and what is that shift in in home education or these micro schools? That'll be something really interesting. Um, on the on the downside, I think the research that's going to come out of looking at what happened with students over time. You know, how do you see this long term bubble of of you know, shifting for at least three months for everyone to online learning is going to be an interesting research topic. I think looking at states that like Florida, to compare Florida where in-person instruction was afforded to anyone who wanted it, along with an online option compared to a state where they still haven't opened up for in-person instruction. I do think seeing what those those impacts have been uh, or, or are and, and how those are gonna carry forward. Those are gonna be really interesting things and should inform how we react to future uh, emergencies as well. Well, thank you, Patricia. I, I, I find your insights uh, always fascinating and no less so uh, uh, on this occasion. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I have been speaking with Patricia Levesque Chief Executive Officer of Excel and Ed, and Jeb Bush's former Deputy Chief of Staff for Education. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.